Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is the founder and CEO of the Folktale Group, Gregory Ahn. Gregory began his career in brand management and luxury marketing in the global wine corporations of Seagram Chateau and Estates, Allied Domique, and Constellation Brands. In 2006, he left corporate life and co-founded Cannonball Wine Company, and after growing Cannonball into a successful national brand, he sold his interest in 2010 to launch a new portfolio company called Cult of Eight. In 2013, the company launched Bread and Butter Winery, which grew into the number one fastest growing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in the U.S. And founded in 2009, the Folktale Group now encompasses eight national wine brands, an estate winery, over 400 acres of vines, two restaurants, a national sales and distribution company, a wellness company, and a new craft spirits portfolio. <laughs> Welcome, Gregory. Thank you, MJ. <laughs> it's a lot, man. Great to be here. <laughs> thank, thank you. Keeps for me being off here. the streets. I know. So, yeah. yeah, he. This guy. Um, you should see him. He looks like trouble. <laughs> you want him roaming the streets? <laughs> oh my God. Um, so, um, thanks for coming in. Give you guys a little background. I, I was just uh, a couple months ago. It'll be a couple months by the time this comes out. I went on a Psalm tour of the San Lucia Highlands and uh, met Greg and just, I was like, I have to have you on my podcast. And uh, he's in New York uh, with his family. Um, I think one of his children goes to like NYU or some really smart Correct, school. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, we made this happen. And um, so thanks for being here again. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, so I like to start at the beginning, man. So where are you from? Uh, I was, uh, let's see, I'm Korean American. So, uh, my parents were both, uh, born in Korea. Um, I was born in Toronto, Canada, um, moved to LA when I was maybe six or seven years old, uh, grew up there and, um, yeah, so kind of heart of an Angelino. Ah, that's kind of crazy. Um, so, so you're first generation Korean American. Uh, but you started in Canada. I'm an immigrant from Canada. Yeah, I was going to say, I was gonna say so, so like, you actually lived in Toronto until you were like six or seven, so you have some memories. What? Why did you, how did your family, did you? Ha did they have relatives who were there in Toronto? Is that how they landed there? Yeah, my my, uh, my mother's family, um, my mother's father, so my grandfather um, uh, left Korea. It was a very kind of post-World War, uh, Korean War, mm -hmm. corrupt uh political environment and um he uh decided to take his family and move he and his well, seven children and wife moved to uh, toronto where there weren't many koreans mm -hmm. i don't want to say it was like the first 
less less than a hundred Koreans when mm. he moved there. Wow, wow. And um, my parents met. My mom was going to look at going to school at Ann Arbor in Michigan. Mm-hmm. My father happened to be visiting a friend there, um, and so th- this mutual friend introduced the two of them in Ann Arbor, and. Then he's like, all right, I guess I got to go to Canada. So <laughs> that's, that's pretty crazy. So um, your dad was living in the United States, though? Yes. After the military service, he moved to the U.S. and uh, uh, kind of jumped around. He was a uh, golf instructor and, wow. and I don't know, all around. You know, he it was back in the 60s. So he had like his velvet underground sunglasses <laughs> and his cool car and, you know. Doing his thing. I love it. All right. So then I just love, see, this is, I love random stuff. So your mom obviously was a very smart woman, is a very smart woman. University of Michigan, incredible school. Um, and then, so you're like, this is a 60s. So, wow, this is, this is, this, see, Greg, this is how this goes on my podcast. We're going to go down a rabbit hole. Um, don't make me start crying. I don't, don't know. <laughs> But she had to be like, uh, not a lot of Asian students at University of Michigan. Oh yeah, no. I mean, she she was a painter, so okay. an artist. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, I think I think that maybe that world was a little bit more progressive at the time than mm-hmm. than you know the economics department. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah, she she. Uh, um, She'll tell you she's not that smart because she married my dad and never went to school. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, that's kind of crazy. So, um, dad, dad packs up the MG or whatever he was driving, goes goes up to Toronto, um, and marries your mother. Um, are you the oldest child? Do you have any siblings? Yeah, I am the oldest. I've got a younger brother who's three years younger than me. Okay, and so. Um, what was it like growing up? Okay, so you you're used to the cold, right? You used you you it's so like when you're in it, it doesn't really matter. You don't go, oh, it's so you know. What was it like? How did you guys? How did your family decide to move to LA? My uh, my father worked for um, in in computers with at, for Gulf Oil mm-hmm. at the time. Um, uh, his twin brother lived in Los Angeles. I'm not sure how we got there, but lived in Los Angeles, and um, oh, probably probably February, you know, 20 below, and he's like, you know what? It's 80 degrees right now. <laughs> <laughs> My dad's like, I'll be right there. <laughs> Family, let's go. You know, I, and and um, yeah, I don't know that he had much of a plan um, except to just get to California and seek opportunities. Um, he ended up uh, uh, buying a restaurant, okay, um, and that was kind of where he started okay so um he bought a restaurant um what type of food was served at the restaurant it was like a classic american drive-in type of joint um uh he barely my my parents barely knew half the things on the menu um and kind of learned it on the fly and um uh um they 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 stayed in the restaurant world. My mom stayed in the restaurant world and sold that restaurant, bought another restaurant. So not, you know we, we were growing up 
that restaurant was in Inglewood. Okay. So um, grew up in Inglewood for his first couple years. Uh, not a great neighborhood back then. Yeah, I was going to say, man, that's yeah. like, <clears throat> I mean, uh, you know, that's, yeah, Ingle, Long Beach, Inglewood. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I assume you're one of the few Asian, uh, one of the Korean, <laughs> Korean families in Inglewood at the time. At the time, <laughs> yeah, Korean rap wasn't the thing. So I was like, <laughs> oh, maybe this isn't for me. <laughs> um, so your mom, you said your mom stayed in the restaurant business. So that first restaurant, did you kind of grow up working in the restaurants with your... Uh, my brother and I were too young at that time. Okay. Um, they ran that for a few years, sold it, um, bought another restaurant in an area called Larchmont Village, and um, ran that. My mom ran that restaurant for 27 years. Wow! And same type of food, or was it? Did uh, the food evolve at that place? Yeah, that was more of like a. Um, it's called Cafe Chapeau. It was a I don't know, uh, breakfast, lunch, cafe, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, uh, she got a lot of pressure to open for dinner, but wanted to be home with the family, so mm-hmm. she never did, and mm-hmm. kept it kept it there. But uh, yeah, it was it was quite popular. I mean, there'd be a line down the block to get in the place, and so she was she worked her tail off, um, and yeah, and I spent spent time working in that restaurant. Um, what are some of your fond memory or vivid memories? Like, what did, did you have? Like every job where you busting tables, did you have to be like a line cook? Like they wouldn't let me on the on the. Near the fire, <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, uh, but yeah, I did. Uh, started in the back of house, and then mainly front of house stuff. So, um, you know, just I can still. Uh, I don't know why I was. I loved as cliche as it is, apple pie a la mode. And so, like, I remember every after every shift, I'd have a, like a slice of apple pie, um, which explains my weight now. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's where it started. Um, no, but I, I loved it. I mean, in being being a waiter in L.A. is like, uh, right, you're like one step from George Clooney because everybody's a waiter in L.A. before they... Facts. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, I mean, it'd be, it was funny. You you had a lot of celebrities um, coming in and out. You had uh, all your coworkers were, you know, needed to go to an audition mm-hmm. and you needed to cover them. So it was kind of a unique environment to be in the hospitality industry. Um and uh yeah but it, it was exciting and and it's a it's a whole nother world being in a big city especially and being in in the hospitality world even though we didn't have a dinner service or bar um you, you there was kind of this whole other world of hospitality professionals that mm-hmm. that i mean you knew where to go every single night where all the hospitality people would be um uh kind of having their happy hour at 3 a.m. Yeah, yeah. I remember I, one, of the, one of the jobs, I think my father was trying to keep me out of trouble and said, you're going to do all the shopping every day. And so I'd, get, you know, I'd be at the market at 4.30 in the morning and you know, buying food for the day, fresh food for the day, and um, I'd be the only one showing up like, as if I came straight out of the <laughs> club, <laughs> right, and, and straight into the market, and uh, all these guys in hoodies and boots, and I'm like, I don't know, probably drowning in Dracar Noir or some crazy. Who knows what I was doing back then? So. Zubaz pants, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Z Camarici. There you go. <laughs> what were those shoes? Oh my God, what Capizio shoes. You had your white Capizios on. <laughs> See, you you knew exactly what I'm I, looking I, I, like I, I at the market right now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Like, who the yeah. fuck is this guy? And I'd deliver the food, and then I'd crash. I'd, I'd just be like, oh, passed out. That's so funny. Um, how long did you guys live in Inglewood? Because I know you, the, you said the restaurant was in Larchmont, but where where did you guys, uh, where was like the bulk of like your teen years in L.A.? What, what part of town did you grow up in? Um, I grew up uh, mainly in, uh, like, after, Inglewood, we were maybe there a year and a half, mm-hmm. and then um, we moved um, a little further north to an area called uh, Westchester. Yep, kind um, Westchester. Yep, so West West L.A. kind of area. Um, high school moved out to the valley, what kind of La Cañada, La mm-hmm. Crescenta area, mm-hmm. um, uh, w- w- which we called the valley, which was, I don't know, a curse word when you lived on the west side. Like, the valley. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a scene in the movie Swingers where they they're out talking to girls, and like oh eight one eight like yeah, like, yeah. like they wanted a three one zero or two one three number like that uh, discrimination was very real yeah. back then before the Watts riots there was like area code war yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is so crazy, um, so what um, so your family is in hospitality, um. But it was breakfast, lunch. So she no liquor license. Did she do like mimosa? No. So was so was wine. Did did your family? Did your parents drink wine at all at home growing up? No, uh, uh, they did not. My mom didn't drink at all. Okay. Um, <clears throat> my dad, uh, he had been a hockey player growing up, so he was more towards beer, beer. and beer and whiskey. But yeah. uh, never there was never a bottle of wine in the house. Um, I really learned wine from. Uh, friends and being in hospitality outside of of our family restaurant mm-hmm. um and yeah it, it, i mean i was just an anomaly like i never ate korean food i i'd cook a pasta for myself or you know make some meal that i saw on tv and uh and then i'd be popping a bottle of wine and my parents had no idea what i was doing <laughs> that's awesome that's okay. awesome <laughs> who raised this guy yeah what's wrong with our kids see Stupid what america man. did to our child <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so, where'd you go to? Where did you go to uh, college? Where did you go to school? Because I read your bio and you're a very interesting major. Uh, yeah, undergrad. I went to a tiny liberal arts college called Trinity College in mm-hmm. Connecticut. Hartford, in Hartford. Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know Trinity. Um, I went to Southern Connecticut, which is not a tiny school, but. Uh, people are probably sick of this, but I had a lot of girlfriends who went to Wesleyan, so Wesleyan would compete against Trinity and Williams and those sports. Right, so that's so right. yeah, yeah. I remember going up to Trinity to watch Britain play basketball or whatever. So, so you went to Trinity. Okay, so you're from, so here you go. You're LA guy, and you come all the way out here to go to Trinity. Yeah, all, all my friends, you know, were going to schools in California, but to me, it was an opportunity to get as far away from that as I could and experience something new. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I don't know, I think, I, I'm sure media had something to do with it. Um, and I just had my my kind of mindset on going to a, a small liberal arts college in New England. And uh, um, we had a family friend who had attended Trinity. Okay, He was, um, uh, and he kind of encouraged me to visit. And uh, when I did, I, I don't know, just felt right. and applied and they let me in so there i was a uh, you know korean uh angelino right. in hartford connecticut and I, I mean i got introduced to the roll neck sweater and the sob 900 i'm like what are these things i feel it was a it was very much a different culture different planet um 
And uh, no offense to the girls in Connecticut or of Trinity, but I was like, yeah, that's this is very different than L.A. girls. <laughs> yeah. You talking about the small liberal arts New England college girl is different yeah. from uh, the the roller skating Venice girl, yeah, or even the Valley girl. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I think that's there is. I tell people I spent more time on Wesleyan cancer because there is something idyllic about a Connecticut, a New England. Small, it's it's like it's it's the scene in every freaking movie, man. Yeah, like yeah. they have a green and they have a, right. a, ch- a chapel and a steeple, and you know, and and the leaves are falling on the ground. And you're, yeah, it's like Hogwarts. Yeah, you know? like. It's, it's, just like, it's <laughs> so much fun, <clears throat> so beautiful, um, so different. Uh, and then so it's liberal arts, man. What did you major in? I started as a. I I, I want to use this disclaimer because just to let everyone know I'm, I can get serious, but I started thinking I was gonna be a lawyer. So I started as an American history major, um, American studies major. Um, and while I liked that, I don't know why, but I found myself pulled to writing mm-hmm. and ended up uh, majoring in poetry, um, uh, which was uh, shocking to my Korean family, of Yeah, course. I was like, yeah, I'm sure they yeah. were really. They were not like, yay. <laughs> My, mo- my mother said, can you just make me a list of the jobs that you can get with that degree? Like anything, just on paper. I need to see that. And I said, I can do anything. <laughs> and I can do it in iambic pentameter, too, now. So, <laughs> uh, Street busker. Luckily, I was a fine arts ma- minor. So, you know, I had something to fall back on. Like sculpture or something. <laughs> yeah, wow. I mean, this like, is like... <laughs> oh, my God. I, from... I did make the mistake of going to law school um, and I had some friends. Actually, I went to law school with this guy named Jen Kim, who was Korean American from LA. He was so fucking cool. Love Jim. Jen. Um, but like, he would tell me, like, like it was like, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, man, or an engineer. It was like, that was your three career paths for, for well, him. Well, I was already a disappointment because <laughs> I didn't go to Harvard, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor. So. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's like, yeah, that that must have been just just exciting for them. Well, think how exciting it was when I told them I was going to make a product that they didn't consume. <laughs> like, yeah, that, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> People drink that. <laughs> I can't wait to get so, so, um, wow. So you you do this, you fine arts, and I will say this: you do find a lot of people with that type of background. A fair amount. I shouldn't say a lot. With a fine arts kind of background in wine, because there is, it has that allure. It is that there is this whole artistic side and creative side. Um, we'll get into later how you've actually figured out how to make that work better than most <laughs> on, on some level. You know what I mean? <clears throat> but um, it does attract a lot of people who who, who have this creative thing. Um, so. You started cooking. You said you mentioned you started cooking and open wine. Was it, this was in LA? So what was kind of like? What was college? Was college just typical college like Natty Light, just beer balls and just parties? Or there was plenty of that, yeah. of course. But uh, yeah, I mean, it it, it was. Uh, I probably knew more about wine than my average uh, freshman college mate, um, and. Uh, you know, in the end, it's all about 
women, right? Like, yeah. So you're like, yeah. how do I impress this girl? Right. Right. And you know, we'd go out, and I'd know what I'm doing on the wine list, and you know, I'd be, I'd be the, the jerk that had a bottle of wine in the dorm, and uh, <laughs> you know, lucky I didn't get beat up by right. the natty light guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see that, like. Um that scene in Animal House where the guy's playing the guitar and he brings it up. I can see someone taking your, your bottle of Beaujolais Nouveau and hitting <laughs> upside the head with it. <laughs> you know, that's so funny. Um, so, what did you, did you stay out east during the summers or did you go back home? <clears throat> no, went home. Um, went home, worked in the restaurant. Okay. Um, uh, I kind of balanced the restaurant. I'd maybe be there mainly on the weekends uh, when it was really busy and so, you know, I, I interned at a law firm. I, in, I uh, interned for a, a councilman. Um, was an extra in movies. Like I, I did, you know, what, whatever was available to me. Um, uh, nothing that really set set my course for this career. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, I always say you got you got to try a lot of things and know what you don't want to do is as valuable as doing things that you think you want to do. So. I, I agree. I, I think um, I think it's real important. Um, so what do you do when you graduate? Do you go back to California to hang out on the East Coast for a little while? Or? Uh, no, I, I started uh, I started a business with my best friend from high school. Um, his uh, his father was in the kind of paper industry, mm-hmm. uh, packaging, gift wrap, uh, that kind of world. And uh, my buddy and I started. Uh, a little side project for him uh, or, or took a side project that he had and kind of tried to turn it into a real business. And then we saw an opportunity where we were looking at all the wholesalers in Los Angeles and said, you know what? These guys are rolling around in their, their Benzes and they got their secretaries and they're wearing their suits and um, their fancy offices. And we said, well, you know, they got so much overhead. We can undercut what they're doing because we're just two guys mm-hmm. in an apartment. And, um, the first uh, kind of whale that we landed was we uh, back in the day there were kind of like Disney stores are now there were Warner Brothers stores. Oh yeah, so Warner Brothers, Brothers had like Bugs Bunny and Marvin the Martian, exactly all that stuff. Yeah, Yosemite Sam. All and they they had they had retail stores all over the mm-hmm. country and in Asia and <clears throat> so we went into one of these stores, um, got samples of all their packaging. Turned it over, could see who had made it, who the manufacturer was. Um, called the manufacturer and said, "Hey, we want pricing on these things." And they already owned, they already had the art plates and everything. And so we somehow got a meeting with the guy at Warner Brothers who was in charge of all the packaging. He did all the supply chain and 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 stuff like that. And uh, I think through my friend's dad, he made that connection. So we go in there and we lay out all his own packaging that we got from his store mm-hmm. and said all. We can supply all this packaging for you, and whatever you're paying, just cut 30% off that price. If you show us the invoice, we'll discount it 30%, and we'll deliver this for you. Exactly from the same manufacturer, from the same – and um, they're like, the guy was like, are you crazy? How are you going to do that? They're like – and we're like, we're just – we cut out all the overhead. You're not paying for my secretary or my Mercedes-Benz, like, um, and we're able to shave all that off and give you this price. He's like, great, let's do it. Suddenly, we're just getting order after order – we got so lazy we, that he was our only client. Like <laughs> we were making tons of money, like supplying mm-hmm. all the packaging for Warner Brothers. Um, uh, and then we did get smaller clients. And I came out to New York, um, uh, 
start working working the market here. My friend stayed on the West Coast, and um, and then one day we read that uh, Warner Brothers is shutting down all its retail operations, and uh, so now it's go, time to go get the real job. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good run. That's um, where did you get? I mean, where did you get the idea to go into packaging, though, man? Like, I mean, it was just it was just there. Like, you know, I think I think one of the things that uh, um, I always say that entrepreneurship is about seeing a problem and solving that problem, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. you know, what we saw was, hey, there's a, there's you know, we we were in those warehouses because of working for his dad, and said, you know where's all this stuff going and you start asking questions and then you realize oh wow these the, the there's a middleman here and that's always tough to be the middleman right mm-hmm. so um uh some young punk like me is going to figure out how to cut your cut cut all that expense out and find a more efficient way to get a product from one person to the end user and that's all it was and we and we, and we that we tried to use that model over and over again um, and if we weren't so young and lazy, we probably could have done something. But um, in the end, I think um, a lot of those wholesalers had to focus on their business on small uh, retailers because eventually the big guys cut me right. out as a middleman, right? The right. big guys said, well, why aren't we going directly to the manufacturer mm-hmm. um, and doing it ourselves? So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was a good run. <laughs> I guess it was a good yeah. run. It was a good run. Um, <laughs> do you think that... Or let me pray. How did growing up in a family that had its own business uh, come into play there? Because people, most people don't see. Do you think watching your parents run a business had some influence on it? Or uh, you know, in all honesty, um, I don't. I don't know that I look back at that time and appreciate all the balls that they were juggling mm-hmm. um, as entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, it's only as you grow older and you look back and say, man, that, that you know, they, they worked their tails off mm-hmm. um, uh, in a way that is hard to appreciate when you don't run your own business. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, but um, they, they weren't completely hands off. They did push me to, you know, get a real job and right. work for a big company and all that stuff. And I eventually did do that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, but, and I think that people that are successful in that corporate world, God bless them. That's not an easy world. And no. there's a, there's a skill set to that. Yep. Um, and, but when you have an entrepreneurial mindset, I think it's hard to, uh, hard to stay in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a great, <clears throat> it's a great learning environment, but, uh, you know, uh, hard to, hard to grow outside of like your expertise yeah and um excuse me that's fine it's all good um it's that time of year i have that little raspy thing going on um also i think it's interesting looking back that there really wasn't this this whole entrepreneur phenomenon for now. People just ran a business. They were right, a business right. owner, right? Like there was no fancy. I'm an entrepreneur. It's like, nah, fucking business, right? Like it's so funny. Um, now farmer is chic. Right. Come full circle. <laughs> totally. You know, uh, what do you do? I'm a farmer. I thought you were a winemaker. No, no, I farm the grapes. <laughs> <laughs> I farm my wine. Yeah. Um, but 
that is very interesting about you said there are two types of well there's more than two types but like there is a very specific corporate ladder mindset that person who can succeed in that environment and then if you are like most big companies in my experience they don't actually want entrepreneurs they want you to like you said become an expert in what you do stay in your lane they don't want you like oh i just noticed maybe we could do this differently now that's so-and-so's apartment don't notice you know yeah it, it, it is it, it's hard to affect change in, in a big company um and i mean there are people that can do that but um it, it's very different than you know being an entrepreneur and and you know i think in a corporate environment, you're incentivized not to make mistakes, not to make the yeah. bad decision. Right. And you'll spend money to justify whatever decision so that even if it's the wrong decision, well, all the data said right, that right. that was the right decision. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as an entrepreneur, you don't have that luxury, right? You're like, well, that was a bad idea because it failed. Yeah. And so we got to go do something else and try something else. Uh, I think it's a different, uh, different mentality and a different, I don't know, maybe working with those actors and all that rejection was uh, a good training ground for me to fall fat, flatten my face every now and then and get back up. Yeah. So you said you did end up doing some corporate stuff. So it was like your first corporate gig. So the, the, the paper, the manufacturing kind of dried up, like you said. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So what did you do next? <clears throat> you, uh, go get a job. I, I, I came to, uh, I was happened to, uh, uh, be in New York and, um, uh, worked kind of a freelance or consulting kind of uh, uh, gigs in New York uh, for about a year, mm -hmm. um, mainly uh, with retail clients that I had, uh, um, and then moved back to LA, ended up getting a job with the Getty Center, okay, uh, which is big, big arts institute in Los Angeles, and I was fortunate enough to get a gig working with them bef like about a year and a half uh, before they opened. So they, they it, the whole institute was under construction. It's this giant white city on a hill. Um, it was a really exciting time because you, know, you felt like you were part of something historic mm -hmm. uh, going on in Los Angeles. And at the time, LA was not necessarily known as, as the, the kind of creative or art center it is today. Um, and so it was kind of a big deal that this thing was going on. And uh, um, I uh, was able to stay with stay in that world until they opened, and then after they opened, and they got down to business uh, the mu business of museums. Um, uh, it was so boring; I couldn't. <laughs> I had to. I was stabbing my eyes out. I was like, "Wait a minute! We planned everything out for three years. Like, there's no changing that." And they're like, "No, no, three. We can start working on year four. I'm like, "Oh my god, this is crazy!" And then and there's the pace of museum life or or that world was. Um, uh, it was too slow for me. Mm -hmm. Like all the, the everything leading up to the opening was was a you know chaotic mess, which was beautiful, mm -hmm. um, which is probably why I'm attracted to hospitality is because that that creative chaos is there every day. Yeah, um, and so that's I mean that's a cool freaking gig, the Getty Center. <laughs> yeah, no, it was. And and it, it made suddenly my mom was like, "Wow, oh, you have a, oh, no, right. oh. a real degree that applies." Here. Yeah, I was, I was amazing. Like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, I was like, you you, you like you got to be like told you. <laughs> right. Yeah, they they got to tour the the property before we opened, um, like they were celebrities, so they were like, "Oh, this is this is impressive," 
I was like, see, arts degree. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me spit some rhyme at you right now because I can yeah. <laughs> drop some poetry on you exactly. and we can give you a tour. No, that's awesome. It was good, yeah. But but yeah, that that was I, I think an exciting time in LA as as the arts world was really flourishing. Very cool. So uh, then it just got Yonsville for you. You're like, Ugh. and then uh, what'd you do? What'd you transition into? What'd you do after? That. My my girlfriend at the time, my now wife, uh, got a job offer in San Francisco. Okay, um, I'd already bought the ring. She didn't know it, but uh, um, and just just for, so you know, there's not really a return policy on these things. No, and once you buy them, they're once like you buy it. It's like a car. You once you drive it off the lot, it's like dropping like, oh, that, like, that half in no value. value. <laughs> there's no value. <laughs> no value in, in an engagement oh, ring. So I was like, except right. the intrinsic value, ladies. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Emotional. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I ended up following her up to San Francisco, um, uh, and I looked at positions in the arts world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the difference between the Getty Center and most arts institutes is, you know, a, probably a fifty percent difference in pay. Mm. Um, and so I was like, "Oh, this isn't going to work <laughs> uh, for me." Um, and so I started looking at other careers. Um, <clears throat> I, I wasn't much very attracted to tech, and so I started reconnecting with friends who made introductions to people up in Napa, because um, okay. I was just right in the backyard. And so I right. started exploring wine country, um, and uh, got introduced to some people, and there were some opportunities um, that uh, that got me into corporate wine. So um, I started with a company called uh, a PR marketing firm called Balzac. And <laughs> I had uh, I had the current uh, owner. Oh, uh, Michael. Mike. Yeah, yeah. You know, Mike. I knew uh, he, he our he, path crossed very yeah, briefly. Right. Uh, I, I was hired by Paul Wagner, who was the founder. Yep. of Balzac. He yeah. bought it from Paul. He was. Right, uh, right. I did a grappa campaign with mm. uh, with them back in June and, and had Mike on and. and uh one of the a grappa producer and we did but that's see, it's small world um and it's so hard like it's ball zach i swear someone's like someone said you said ball sack and i'm probably sure i did because i'm <laughs> fucking from new jersey i was like ball sack communications um michael i love you it is ball so wow okay so you 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 went to work there okay yeah and the, my kind of the, the main thing i focused on was the seagram account and so at the time, uh, there were some great people working there. Uh, main, kind of my main connect at Seagram was, um, uh, I, I want to say at the time, he may have been the youngest master psalm uh, named Evan Goldstein. Okay. And uh, yeah, that that dude kind of opened up the world of wine to me in a way that, that I'd never seen before. He and Paul Wagner was an encyclopedia mm-hmm. um, and uh, both of them had so much passion for it that it was infectious. So, um, you know, it was a great kind of entry into the world of wine. Yeah, it's it's a <clears throat> small world. I also had, um, I want to say, Philippe Pascal, who ran Chateau and Estates. Oh yeah, yeah. You're you're talking out, out of New York. Out of New York. Yeah, yeah. yeah he was on the podcast. Yeah, and 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 and, and people. Um, I had him talk about it, but I don't, I don't know when people are going to hop in and listen to the thing. But tell people like Seagram's Chateau and Estates was it. 
was the company. Yeah, yeah. Like they had Mouton. They had every first they, group. The Burgundy Bordeaux portfolio. Yeah. The best in the country. They, you, if there was a name, they had it. And it was, yeah, the guys out of New York, they were studs. Ab Simon and kind of these guys yeah. had had built an amazing, amazing portfolio. Yeah. And I love that, like, um, like that's like your first job because you get worked without a secret account. <laughs> yeah, no, it was nuts. Uh, I remember, I, I think all of us have, all of us in the wine business kind of remember certain wines that, you know, I, I like to say that the hook got in deeper um, uh, into your into your mouth so you couldn't leave this business. But, you know, I got to sit next to, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the proprietor of Mouton Charlemagne, and he sat there tasting me through, you know, a vertical of white burgundy, and it was like nothing I'd ever done before, mm-hmm. and, and just blown away by what that wine was doing in the glass, and he really sh- taught me how to taste. Um, you know, so the exposure to great winemakers, great wine professionals, great wine minds, and great wines, um, yeah, it was a completely, it, it, it was like, you know, I don't know. It, it, it's like learning to play golf at Pebble Beach. Where, where are you going to go from there? You got you're hooked. You're yeah. like, this is golf. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> this is the <Yeah>. best. <laughs> um, and so, what did you do? How long were you uh, with um, Ball Sack Communications? <laughs> Ball Sack. Uh, several years. Five years, maybe. Okay. Um, yeah, a good number of years. Um, until the Seagram uh, kind of empire, uh, they they had really built um, a, a outside of the wine industry. They had really built a big entertainment side of the company. They owned Universal Studios, Universal Music, all that stuff. And so the entire company was bought and pieced out. Right. Um, and so uh, what was Seagram? This this uh, iconic company kind of got torn apart and and. Uh, uh, sold to different companies, and so um, there was a brief, brief moment where Diageo uh, owned um, some of the wine brands, and um, I did some work with them. And then I got recruited by Allied Domecq, who um, at the time was the second largest drinks company in the world, and they they had they had acquired the Napa Valley portfolio, um, uh, and so I, they recruited me to kind of manage that side of the business um uh at this time the whole wine industry was kind of going through a big transformation um it had gone from a from a world where wine was kind of more of a lifestyle uh product and that the companies that ran those companies uh, ran those brands and wineries embraced that lifestyle Mm -hmm. um to really more of a corporate um uh, piece of the corporate puzzle, mm-hmm. and so motherships were coming in and and changing leadership and demanding more of their wine divisions. Um, hmm. So even though you you grow this the, these very strong brands, the profitability and the growth curve never could compete with spirits, right? So yeah. all these drinks companies were like, well, that's not growing like Smirnoff vodka is. Maybe we need to bring in a spirits guy that knows nothing about wine and have him fix it. No, it's just because you can just right. fucking make vodka. You have to right. wait for grapes to fucking ripen and make fucking oh, yeah. wine. Right? Like, no, <laughs> I, I had guys come in that did not know how a bottle of wine was made. <laughs> They're like, "Can we? Maybe we can put a flavor to it." I'm like, "Are you crazy? You're gonna 
Take that Cabernet and put a flavor to it. I mean, well, we, we are we yeah. we've arrived. There. We have, <laughs> yeah. we have. They, they got but, their but wish. They, they got their yeah. wish. But um, what were some of the brands in that Napa portfolio? Because I I would have to think they were pretty iconic. Probably Mum Napa was a big one. Um, uh, William Hill, which is now owned by Gallo, I believe. Uh, Atlas Peak. Mm. Um, uh, but that that quickly kind of started broadening out, mm. and um, uh, you know they they had a great. Great portfolio. They had Claude Dubois. They had um, uh, um, Geyser Peak. And so, I mean, it, it, it became um, a big portfolio. And then they obviously acquired uh, Robert Mondavi, yeah. which was, you know, that, that was probably a big turning point for the wine business when a company like Robert Mondavi was acquired by a UK-based, yeah. uh, you know, global corporate company. It, it was, I, I remember that was, that that was it was like you know one of those moments in history you're like oh it's never gonna be the same now yeah that's like landing on the moon that's like that's like one of those I I think it's crazy nowadays like yeah like the Mondot like when you like you don't own their name they don't own, they don't own their father's name yeah that's like insane um but I mean it made a lot of money but still but like it, it, like you said and that lifestyle which is which is interesting because now I think and we live in a world with social media and influencers and people like push this wine lifestyle and I'm like mm, I'm old enough been around I'm like mm, this is all bullshit <laughs> yeah well on one level you know what it's funny I used to say like it doesn't matter if you spent two dollars on that bottle of wine or two hundred dollars on that bottle of wine the consumer is still imagining that same idyllic, Absolutely. romanticized, yep. you know, a, some dude with a beard and a, a vest and a Labrador and his <laughs> boot on the barrel or you no know, whatever, and and vineyards in the background. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, the brand could be seven million cases a year yep. or seven cases a year, and the, the consumer and has has somehow attached that yeah. that image to every bottle of wine. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Um, I love it. I love it. So, um, you're kind of doing this consulting. Yeah, Chubby uh, Korean is not what they imagined, by the way. Not, <laughs> not, I'm not the first thing yet. I'm still working on that campaign. <laughs> imagine if every bottle of wine, they're like, imagine me. They'd be like, oh no, oh. let's let's move on. <laughs> Get I the think, bourbon. They're like, I'm gonna go see see the rise of seltzers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it's pretty impressive that they recruited you. Like they, like you had built up uh, enough of a reputation that they they recruited you. Um, is that? And I don't I don't say like obviously you're very talented, but like I think people also forget like it, wine is it's also it's, it's global. It's a small world though. Once you get there's levels like okay, so like there's the G League of the NBA, and then you know what I mean like and like once once you kind of get like you said, you started like playing golf at Pebble Beach, right? So you obviously started in rarefied air. You're kind of going to hang around there. Um, what came? So did you go to work for them full time, or you just did the consulting, or what was kind of like the next thing that no, happened? Full time, full time in brand man as a brand manager okay. or portfolio manager. Um, uh, I, I think it was a an easy transition because I was already familiar with those those wines and and um, <clears throat> you know had had. Sp Spent a lot of years building up those stories and mm -hmm. positionings, and so um, it, it was a very easy transition. I think the 
the changes within that corporate environment and every corporate environment at the time to try and and see if can we market wine like we do spirits can we mm-hmm. accelerate the growth I, I think that put a lot of pressure on the wine industry to to put out products that that maybe were were not as um, soulful as once yeah. upon a time yeah um, they were market driven data driven um, you know, the problem with data is by the time you see the trend it's a trend like you're you you need to hurt it takes a long time to grow a you know grow a grape right. you know we're like let's create a new product okay give me 3 years to work on that to get it right but you know when when uh the the publicly traded company's timeline is very different they they're like we don't have 3 years cuz you won't be here in 3 years and I won't be here in 3 <laughs> years so let's get this done by the end of the quarter you know it's like right. oh how are we going to do this and then you know and so i think that 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 leads to um uh leads to decisions that are not the best for the long run um, because quite frankly that those companies aren't built for patience mm. Mm, mm, mm. speaking of patience why don't we just take a quick break um, and we'll be back I'm loving the conversation we'll be back with more Gregory on so we'll be right back Okay, we're back. So we're talking about, you know, kind of that period where wine was changing and there was like actually what they call a seismic shift almost. Um, What was your next gig after Allied? Um, uh, While I was at Allied, I started going to graduate school. Okay. Um, And so I was able to uh, 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 get into a program where – Berkeley and Columbia allowed me to go part time, like kind of uh, basically once a month for a week. I would go to. It's like an executive MBA before that became a big thing. Yep, gotcha. Um, So, and I was already traveling quite a bit for work. So, Mm -hmm. going to New York for classes or and then to San Francisco for classes didn't phase me. Um, But I didn't have any kids at this point. Clearly, oh, I had kids. Oh wow, yeah. So I'm told. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, I before I started grad school. My uh, second child, my oldest boy, mm-hmm. uh, Augie, was born uh, 10 days before I started class. Okay. And, yeah, I mean, my, my wife is heroic in her support and, and understanding, but uh, there, were, there were days where I was like, oh, I'm not going to work or class. I'm gonna, <laughs> I got to help you. <laughs> <laughs> Two little kids under, you know, under three, yeah. and I was like, it was nuts, and uh, we we didn't live near family and things like that. So it was it was, uh, yeah. She's we've been we've been married twenty four years, but she's the greatest single mom I know. Nice, nice. Shout out, <laughs> shout out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you you're doing you're in the program. Um, was this suggested to you to grow your career? Or are you just like you know what it was? Or yeah, like, yeah. It, I mean, in a corporate environment, you got. Back then, especially, you got to a point where I was at whatever a director level, right. and you know, to get to the next, you got to have an MBA, got to have an MBA from yeah. somewhere, you yeah. know, and um, uh, it was just a box that a random, quite frankly, not an important box in my opinion, but a box that again they before they promote you, they got to make sure right. it's the right decision. Yeah, well, he's got an MBA, so oh, of oh, course oh, it's oh, the right yes. decision. <laughs> yeah. 
Not, 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 not the whole body of work you produce. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's got the MBA. Um, all right, so uh, you get your MBA. Um, I'm never getting another corporate job, huh? This entrepreneurship thing better work out. Yeah, I think it better work <laughs> out for you. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, don't, I won't get into everything, but I, I think you kind of have – what I saw, just what I heard briefly when we met, was I was like, oh, he's got it kind of dialed in. Like, I mean, it's it's never dialed in, but I think you, you said it like you kind of like the chaos of it. So, like, you you can manage. If you can manage the chaos, you, you'll be fine as an entrepreneur. People who can't manage chaos are not never going to make it as an entrepreneur. You yeah, know? you're never in control. That's, yeah. yeah. Um, so you get this MBA, so you get a new promotion, and you go where? You know, I I, I, I ended up leaving – um, allied uh, kind of my last semester of uh, grad school. Okay. And we moved up to Portland, Oregon. And it was like uh, our, our year in Tuscany, but it was in Portland. So we just, <laughs> I unplugged from work, finished school, mm-hmm. and then <clears throat> honestly contemplated getting out of the wine business and seeing what other industries I might be interested in. Right. And um, sure enough, the Willamette Valley is... 20 minutes from downtown Portland, right? Way too close. Mm-hmm. So I was discovering that, mm-hmm. you know, kind of an, uh, uh, an area of, of wine uh, production that I was not familiar with. Mm-hmm. Started to fall in love with, you know, the Willamette Valley and the wines of Oregon and, and uh, the Pac Northwest. And wife and I almost bought a winery uh, in the Willamette Valley that was for sale. Um, uh, uh, so... Luckily, that deal fell through, um, but um, I, I realized that I still had my heart in wine, mm-hmm. and so um, I literally said, "Okay, uh, I, you know, after grad school, I, I had some recruiter contacts, and I said, I ca- reached out, I said, all right, I'm ready to go back to work, and I'm looking for the highest paying job. I got, I got, I got student loans, mm-hmm. I got to pay off, I got family support. Let's get to get to work, and so." Um, I accepted a job managing Blackstone Winery for Constellation. Okay. I remember Blackstone. I know Blackstone. Yeah. At the time was, I want to say, the largest, became the largest wine company uh, in the world. Yeah, Blackstone Merlot was a banger back yeah, in the yeah. day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But back in the, I mean, that was, you know, one of the one of the first real, like, modern power brands. It was, like, post, uh, I don't know if you remember, the 60 Minutes. Uh, everyone credits the 60 Minutes segment about the French paradox. Yes. Um, as having kind of- They eat butter, cheese, and they right. drink red wine, and they don't gain any weight, and That's they live right. to 100. And, and they then, smoke cigarettes, too. <laughs> right, right. Fucking French people got it all. <laughs> got it all. Uh, but but they credited kind of red wine right. as a secret to that lifestyle. And so red wine started taking off, um, and uh, Merlot or Merlot, as people called it back in the day, um, went nuts. Yeah. You know, it was a- made in a softer approachable style and people fell in love with it and um, merlot became the the fat the, the largest red wine um varietal in the united states and blackstone was right there mm-hmm. leading the charge and mm-hmm. so blackstone became the the largest uh the biggest merlot brand in the country mm. and it was you know that was one of those happy accidents they didn't they didn't you know they just happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right product and um um uh I got hired to you know I, I I if I look back I remember the president of the company uh was a, uh, an amazing guy named Jose Fernandez 
I'm interviewing with him for this job, and I, I ask him, so what is, uh, what is it that makes Blackstone so successful? Why is it so popular? And he literally says to me, we don't know, but don't screw it up. <laughs> I'm like, that's my job? Don't mess up. Don't mess up. <laughs> no. That's I, so funny. Yeah, what makes it so, I mean, yeah, shit. Wow, I love it. So um, when did you, uh, let's talk about some of the stuff you did. So how long were you there? Because it, it's, I mean, I read in your intro that, you know, 2006 you started Cannonball. So well, how long were you with uh, Constellation, Blackstone? How long? Was I was there less than a year. Wow. Um, before they announced that they were moving the corporate offices up to San Francisco. Okay. And my, my wife had already, we had three children by then, and my wife was like, We're not moving. We're not, we're done moving. Um, uh, she had fallen in love with Monterey, as had I. And uh, Okay, so you were already living in Monterey yeah, at that yeah. point. Okay. That's uh, right, because that was like Central Coast kind of black stuff. Correct. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so we, so we said, All right, well, I better uh, go find another gig. Yeah. And, um, there's there there uh, uh, there's not a lot of big wine companies based in Monterey, mm -hmm. um, a couple of them, but uh, um, it's a it's a big agricultural right. center and yep. uh, and tourism yeah. uh, drive uh, the two drivers, but um, uh, it wasn't anything that I was really excited about. And quite frankly, I, I was kind of had very little of my soul left after that many years in corporate, mm -hmm. and I wanted to, I know I longed for kind of those things that I fell in love with about wine. And so um, I was, how old was I, 32 or something like that? And I was, uh, I had three kids and a wife and I was the only income. And I said, you know what, the best thing to do is start my own company right now because that that's, makes a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, <laughs> that's good and um, they, uh, Seagram actually paid me a severance because they, uh, not Seagram, sorry, Constellation, because uh, they were moving the job, yeah. right? So it was, uh, layoff. So they gave me a nice package and I borrowed some money from friends and family and started uh, to put something together and thus Cannonball was born. And at the time, I, I mean, I'll, I give a lot of credit to my time in that corporate environment because mm -hmm. I really learned how that world worked, um, how they looked at the market, um, how they uh, um, how they drove growth, things like that, and, and you know what, what kind of decision making was being done in the boardroom. And one of the things that I took away was that Cabernet, as California Cabernet as a category, was very, very decentralized. Every varietal seemed to have a clear leader, right? You mm -hmm. had Kendall Jackson Chardonnay, Blackstone Merlot, Ravenswood Zinfandel. Like mm -hmm. every category had this clear leader, but Cabernet was did not have that. So to me, uh, the opportunity was well, we can come in at uh, a uh, what was then called super premium category cab. Uh, with a California AVA, and there's no clear leader. There's no like giant to to take down. So w there's an opportunity to build a brand there. So uh, this was a so we created a brand that was um, Cabernet only. It was one skew, and um, the uh, uh, founding winemaker of Blackstone chose to join the company, and so we had a very talented winemaker and. Uh, I'll say the first year was was a little tough, 2006 to 2007, um, and then the uh, um, you know because back back then everybody was they were there flush with money and 
everyone, you know, the wine industry was living on hundred dollar plus Cabernets, you know, yeah. left and right. Uh, when the economy, uh, the Great Recession hit, everybody was like, "Oh, holy, I, we can't afford these wines anymore," and they were looking for more value Cabernets, and there we were. And suddenly, when the recession hit, ca- Cannonball started taking off, and so. Um, uh, it, it in hind, you know, it may have looked like we were uh, smart, but we were completely just lucky. <laughs> <laughs> There's a theme in my life here, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it just started taking off because we were in the right distribution wholesale houses, and they needed that like value cabernet for buy the glass opportunities and retail, and it just started growing. And uh, um, uh, yeah, so so. That that's how, that's how, the first company took off. So, for people who don't know, like you mentioned, like hundred dollar cabs, blah blah. But but from a corporate wine standpoint, standpoint, what is a premium bottle of wine? Oh well, premium back then used to be kind of ten dollars. That's right. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. now it's up to fifteen yeah. or something like that. Super premium. It yeah. was at that time kind of ten to fifteen. Yeah, right. Like yeah. so. So it's pretty. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's. In, I don't think. I think it. I don't. Is insane right word, but like, you know, because of what I do and where I how I got in wine business, I don't drink a lot of wines in that price range. <laughs> right. I've been, but it's not my dime. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm just lucky. Yeah. But like you know, I think people don't understand. Like it's not. It's like that's why you, there's so much focus on. That's why people want that 92 points on their 20 dollar cab. That's a huge yeah. selling point, man. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a. I mean, when when you a lot of times those wines are coming from, uh, uh, they're 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 imported wines because. Just the cost of land and the cost of labor in but this country, you can't make I tell people, that yeah. bottle of wine yeah. at that price. Go go to Spain, go to go to Portugal. You want a good bottle of wine under twenty bucks? Get out of the U.S. because just the it's so cost prohibitive to make a bottle of wine, a great bottle of wine for that price in America. Like I said, the cost of land, labor, like it's insane. And and so, Cannonball, like. Did you come up with the logo and did you do the artwork? Because I know you were really big and you said you're in design and everything. Yeah, no. Uh, one, one of one of our uh, one of the guys that was uh, involved in the company came up with the name. Um, uh, he he was kind of imagining a big black ball, and I was like, oh, I don't know if that's gonna do it. <laughs> so we really tried to search for alternatives, and so this idea of a cannonball dive right. kind of uh, captured a lot of emotion and nostalgia and. Um, uh, it wasn't necessarily a word you heard every day, but it was familiar to everybody and had uh, kind of positive connotations to it. So um, I found a piece of an old piece of art that a famous artist named Michael Schwab had designed for a I want to say it was like an event design company, Cannonball Events or something like that. And it was it was this uh, boy doing a dive. It was actually his son mm-hmm. was the model, uh, and th- that piece of art was probably. 20 years old um, they, and they had stopped using it and so I reached out to the company first and the company connected with the artist and then I worked with the artist to kind of take that initial uh, graphic and and embellish it and and add add the water and kind of turn it into a wine label 
See, I was hoping you're going to be like, yeah, we were sitting around, we were watching Caddyshack. Was like, Cannonball, <laughs> you know. I was, that's where I thought it was, I hope it came from. But um, trust me, every wine company probably starts with a drunken night, um, of right? And then so, yeah, I know. Let's start a wine company. Right? <laughs> right? Um, we could do this. We- <laughs> 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 um, and like you talked about this, I mean. Like that's a wine that is in every supermarket, just about every supermarket. You can go anywhere in America and find Cannonball nowadays. Pretty impressive. Um, was that I would have to assume, and you alluded to this because of your time in corporate. You know how to look at things, and you knew how you would have to penetrate the market and blah blah. blah. Um, talk a little bit about because um, I find this interesting. I found this out a couple months. Ago. I don't know when I found out, maybe, but like. People don't, f- don't know how small Napa is. That's, you know what I mean? So, like, most Cabernet is going to be California, and it's, like, lake, and then, like, there's a ton Central of... Central Central Coast, Central Valley, ton of cab. Now you've seen the premium out of it, but Paso Robles had a ton of cab. Yeah, yeah. Um, from, you said you had the winemaker from Blackstone. How does, a, how did he come up with the, f- at that, at that point, I, there's got to be a formula when you're making that millions of cases, right? Like, it's not. And there's still an art to that to come up with that formula, but like, yeah, but I mean, uh, there, there, there's when you start scaling a brand, um, it, right? I mean, it, it. Uh, I'm gonna shatter people's beautiful dreams in a minute here, but when you think about making a million cases of of, let's just say a million cases of cavern, California Cabernet Sauvignon, that's not all coming from one vineyard. <laughs> Every year, right? <laughs> it's that, and the guy that in the vest of the Labrador, that guy's not in the picture. He's yeah. he's he's in a laboratory, putting together a a formula that is, you know, sourcing grapes from all over the state, uh, bringing it together and uh, working to blend it into something that tastes consistent from the previous mm. vintage and the vintage before that, because. A lot of consumers that are shopping under twenty dollars, they're not really interested in terroir. Well, not only terroir, but uh, they don't know not ni- you know nineteen ninety nine vintage no, versus two thousand. Don't care about vintage variation. I don't give a uh, shit. Yeah. It's the gatekeeper that's like, oh, that's a older vintage. Well, your consumer is paying twelve dollars. He doesn't really care. <laughs> and those wines are typically made. You know, I always say that wines at that price category, the 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 goal is to be varietally correct. Yeah, right. Like you want you want your Cabernet to taste like Cabernet. You want your Pinot Noir to taste like Pinot Noir. But the the reflection of place or the reflection of uh, vintage should not be there, cannot be there at that price point and at that volume. Um, that we th- that is the creation of a a uh, consistency that uh, that consumer at that price point is looking for. Right? They want to be. It's like a Honda. They want to know when I. When I pick up that bottle, I, I know what I'm getting. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start getting into more uh, higher price wines and that are smaller in scale, um, that that's when you want. I, I hope that that the consumer is looking for a true reflection of place and a reflection of what happened in that vintage, right? And mm-hmm. you know, at Folktale, our you know, kind of one of the things we we like to say is that you know, the name comes from this idea of of there's a story in that bottle. Mm-hmm. That story is about what happened that year leading up to that wine. So in 2004, I can tell you about 
what happened in that year and what what that winter was like and what that summer was like what that harvest was like and why that wine tastes the way it does um and it's going to be different than the next vintage and the vintage after that because every year is different so um people that you know are uh you know i i, I drink plenty i make and drink plenty of 15 dollar wine mm -hmm. um it's probably not i'm probably not swirling in and sniffing it but man it goes great with my burger and i'm a happy guy yeah. um and so there, there's every wine has a place every wine has a reason for being i think um uh but you can't expect the same thing out of every wine at every price yeah. and and you're right like there are you can, you can go to spain and find amazing 20 dollar wines that have all that in it um and I part part of me thinks that the reason those wines haven't become more popular is because the guy that they should just price them higher. Yeah. Because the guy spending eighteen twenty dollars may not be looking for that experience right. as much. Right. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And so then you build that up, does what an entrepreneur does, sells their steak, starts something else, uh, cultivate. Um. Wow! I just got it. Cultivate. You just got it. <laughs> just got it. Just fucking got it. Now you did too at home. <laughs> yeah. So it's spelled cult of yeah. and the number eight. Yeah. And then now you got to say it a few times. Yeah. So uh, uh, what was the uh, idea behind that? You know, the impetus for this was really it came out of um, uh, the post recession. Yep. The recession didn't really hit the wine industry till a year or two later. Um, suddenly the industry found itself with a mountain of grapes and, and juice that didn't have a home because, uh, wine sales just weren't sucking it up as fast as they were. And so, you know, they always grow, show a curve that is a growth curve that never stops. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, because I had all these kind of corporate connections, I was, uh, uh, got, got people calling one guy called me and said, hey, uh, m this company has identified 1.2 million uh, cases worth of wine and grapes over the next three years that they have tagged as excess, meaning that they're, they're the, the sales force said, We're, we can only sell this much. All, the rest of this you guys got to find a home for. Mm -hmm. And he calls me and says, hey, do you have any idea what we could do with this? I go, oh, for the right price, I'll take it all. Um, and he says, what, what's the right price? And I said, well, if you let me blend it and you let me design the package and you guys do do bottle it, label it, do everything and give me a finished product, I'll pay you $10 a case. Um, and there's, let me get back to you. Two weeks later, I'm sitting down with the CFO <laughs> of this major corporation negotiating some deal over, over all their excess wine because one thing I knew kind of from, a, from my corporate experiences, that the way they account for things is, in their minds, they had already written off that wine. Yep. What they needed to do was amortize their overhead or else everything else they were selling was gonna cost more, right? Mm -hmm. That bottling line time, the contracts for labels, all that kind of stuff, they were kind of trapped in those costs and if there wasn't a way to amortize that overhead, everything looked less profitable. So it made sense for them in the end to sell it to me for, a low price. Um, the, I, I think we ended up at a weighted average of twelve dollars and thirty three cents a case, 
Um, so suddenly, out of nowhere, I could like compete with Two Buck Chuck mm-hmm. with a much better wine. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, my partners at the time, they they would, thought I was crazy. They were like, "We we are a, a hundred thousand case company, and you're about to sign up for how much wine?" And th- they they didn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> so they said, "You can do it on your own, but you have to protect us from that." Mm-hmm. crazy adventure so that's when i started cultivate put the, everything into a separate separate deal mm-hmm. um i was able to negotiate so that um uh they basically financed the whole thing i said uh here's a balling schedule and mm-hmm. you guys uh produce it at this on these dates deliver it to me and i'll pay for the wine uh, 120 days after i receive it so my job was to go sell, go sell it, collect the money, pay them, yep. do it again, do it again, do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I got very lucky again in that at the time China was a booming market for California wines mm-hmm. or wines in general. Mm-hmm. Um, guys were showing up, guys who knew nothing about wine and nothing about importing alcohol, would show up and say, "Hey, I need 10, 10 containers a month." And I was like, "Are you crazy?" I was like, "Oh, you're gonna have to pay for it up front." They just wire me the money. <laughs> I'm like, they'd be like, no problem. And they wired me the money and I'd send them the wine. I, I didn't know where it was going. Wow. Um, one, one year, I, 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 mean, I probably sold, after selling 100,000 cases of, of wine to China, I was like, I got to go see where they're selling this stuff. Like, this is already a big brand in China. So I go out, meet with some of the importers. First of all, I had done no vetting. I mean, they're paying me cash on the right, barrel head. Right, right. So I was like, I don't. I don't care what you do, right. <laughs> the cash is there. <laughs> and I would go, and this guy, one guy, had a chain of hair salons, and I'd walk. He brought me into the the hair salon, and there it was, a wall of wine uh, that he would be selling to all the patrons of the hair salon. Wow. Um, I was like, "This is how you're selling this wine?" I was like, "Do you have a liquor license?" They're like, "You don't need that here." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I. I I went to one place and got a foot massage. There, there they are wow. serving my wine. I'm like, wow, this is nuts. Um, and uh, that was only in, I only visited three cities that trip, but mm-hmm. I, I was blown away. I mean, there, there was literally guys standing on the street corner selling wine. Um, and so it was just a very different thing. And um, uh, I said, well, let's just keep it going. Yeah. And, and, you know, I sold, sold through that, but it also gave me the opportunity to, to build a brand in the United States and really – um, uh, solidify a strong distribution, and pro- pro- I mean, I would say that distribution in this country is uh, because it's legally you have to sell through a wholesale network. I mean, that's what really where the bottleneck is, right? If yep. you want to sell, if you if you're starting a brand and you want to sell your bottle of wine in Georgia, you have to get a wholesaler, and yep. you have to get that wholesaler to first accept you into their portfolio before you can sell to a single restaurant or store. Yeah. And so there's there's a strong uh, set of gatekeepers here to to building a building a brand in this country. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so uh, I guess out of the the cultivate experience became uh, bread and butter. Um, again, um, just simple simplicity. Bread and butter. What was that? Was that like we need a, we need a brand that we can consistently sell to keep the cash? So this is our bread and butter, or just I, I was I, in hindsight, I was completely against this 
starting this brand, but mm-hmm. it was a request out of our whole from one of our wholesalers. Okay, um, they were seeing that uh, uh, the the world of Chardonnay had kind of swung around, and we were probably coming out of this like naked Chardonnay, unoak Chardonnay right. trend, and uh, people were getting back into big oaky yeah, buttery like Chardonnay. Buttery, there's yeah. butter and there's jam. Right, yeah, right. Those brands were coming and, out. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, our wholesaler was like, hey, we need something to play in this market. Can you develop a wine for us? And I was like, oh, I really I really don't like this style of wine. But, okay, if you guys will commit to a certain you know amount, I'll, I'll put the wine together. And uh, so we made the wine. It was a beautiful, beautiful wine. It was probably not as oaky or, or buttery as uh, they would have liked, but it was sufficiently so. Mm-hmm. Um, really hit all the all the flavor profiles and texture. Um, but then we had to come up with a name. And um, I was in Salem, Massachusetts at this. I can't, I can't remember the name of, this, of the store, but it, it had like half the store was wine mm-hmm. and half the store was like baking equipment, right? And mm. so, the, uh, and all the wines were like tongue-in-cheek labels, like, uh, mommy's little helper or you know, like things like that. <laughs> right. Like uh, they just love these little tongue and cheek yeah. labels. So I, I remember being there and I pulled a book. It was a uh, bakery uh, glossary, mm-hmm. like dictionary of baking terms. And um, I sat there with the owner of the shop and the staff and it must've been a slow day. Cause we were all like, they, they I, I told them what I was trying to do. And they're like, we were just like, Hey, what about this name? What about this name? <laughs> And they're, you know, they were, they, and they, it was the right kind of crowd because they, they love this like kitschy kind mm-hmm. of themey stuff. And so uh, we ended up with bread and butter as kind of one of the names. And when I brought it home, I, I kind of liked how it had multiple meanings. Um, it wasn't just the flavors of bread and butter, mm-hmm. but it was also meant dependable. It meant like kind of your go-to. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, um I decided that that should be the name, but then how do you design a label for bread and butter? It was very difficult. <laughs> like if you're, you're like Black Stallion would have been an easy label, but <laughs> bread and butter, right. I was like, I toiled for months on this label and and I was too cheap. I'm still too cheap to, to hire a designer to really do all the labeling. So I, I designed everything. And I remember being at my mom's house for Christmas and uh, she always wore Chanel number no. five. And that label, I was like, that people like. I mean, Iconic. the ladies like that label. It's been around for a while. And so if you look at the bread and butter label and compare it to Chanel number no. five, you you may see some similarities. Mm. Nice. And and so here again, then you you built that up, you sold that, and then in the interim, you you had started the folktale group, right? Yeah. So tell people about folktale and why it's important to you and the philosophy and yeah, we, we, I mean, w- coming out of Cannonball, I, I kind of took an approach to wine for, for Cultivate uh, that was a portfolio approach. So the idea was, just like these big corporations, I was going to hedge my bets. I was going to have wines that were premium priced all the way up to luxury priced. And no matter what the economy was doing or no matter what account I walked into, I had a wine for them, right? If you were... If you were looking for a, a, a Chardonnay for your happy hour, guess what? I had that wine. If you were looking for, you know, a, a single vineyard San Lucia Highland wine, I had that in my bag. You know, and so I, I wanted to try and diversify mm-hmm. our book. And so we 
we we still have alias aviary bread and butter because it was it was kind of a, a request from a distributor and <clears throat> to be efficient we went out and kind of asked people hey would you be interested in this brand mm-hmm. and so, shockingly it, it took off i mean we sold out we made that wine july of 2013 sold out by august scrambled to to find more more wine to put together sold out again in december mm. um and then we like went crazy like off that 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 2013 vintage we had committed to grapes and we were like okay i guess we're in this now and um that that thing grew from uh so in 2013 it maybe did 25,000 cases the next year it did 100,000 cases mm. The next year, to two hundred thousand cases, it it was just like doubling, 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 and I had never been more poor in my life because <laughs> every, you know, it, it it took more money to grow that brand than it took, mm-hmm. than it was making. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, we couldn't afford to do anything. It was bologna sandwiches and oaky buttery chardonnay. That's what I had <laughs> in my fridge, <laughs> um, uh, and uh, um. We ended up growing that business, and uh, in the middle of it, as you said, that we were not looking to buy a winery mm-hmm. um, or or get into into that side of the business. But um, I hired a beautiful man named Mark Dreyer, who had worked at the previous winery uh, for many years, and he joined our company. and He started telling me about this place, uh, this beautiful property. I was like, oh, I've never been there. Um, let me go check it out. So I went over, went on the tour, and kind of tasted the wines and did the whole thing. Um, and I said, "Okay, I, the property was beautiful. Is uh, you know, 17 acres in the middle of Carmel Valley, tucked in this little uh, little corner. It was gorgeous outside the fog line. So um, uh, I, I through a friend approached the owner mm-hmm. uh, about buying buying his business, or if if he was interested in selling it." Um, he was kind of a blustery guy, so he said, he's like, no, 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 we're doing great. I don't want to sell. But if I were to sell, here is my insane price I would ask for. Mm-hmm. Um, and rather than, than reacting, I said, well, if you can justify that price to me, I, I'd be interested. So he opened up his book, Seven Years of Financials, he showed me. I understood his business left and right. Um, and in the end, I told him, you know, I, I don't I don't think the, the, the price for the brand and the business is justified, but the real estate... I'd be interested. So if you were ever open to separating those two, I'd be interested in buying the real estate. Conversation stopped a month later. He came back and and said, "Okay, I'm willing to sell the property." And so um, that that whole process probably took about a year to close. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole time, my wife was like, "What are you doing? This is crazy." Plus, I was like working nonstop, growing bread and butter and the rest of the portfolio. Um, and I was like, oh, "Don't worry, the bank's never going to give us all this money. It's crazy." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "You know, at some point, I'm going to be able to pull out of this thing." And next thing you know, I'm standing there with a key in an empty winery with my wife, and going, "What the hell did we just do?" Like, it felt like like we shouldn't be there, and the cops were going to come yeah. and get us out of there any yeah. minute now. And um, I remember I uh, my I took my mom and dad around and after we closed and my dad's reaction was, can you give it back? (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing? This is crazy. Um, Because even though we had built this big monster of a business in terms of uh, um, uh, 
bread and butter and the rest of the portfolio. And we were doing, you know, 300,000 cases of wine a year, which is quite a bit. Um, it, it, it's, no one ever could see it, right? It was never uh, as visible because all that wine was sitting in a warehouse. Yeah. All the wine was being yeah. produced in custom crush facilities right. and things like that. And so um, now this thing was like a bricks and mortar thing. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I thought it was going to be a lot of work and I completely underestimated it. It was so much more work than I could have imagined. Um, but we had, we had a great team. Um, uh, uh, um, my general manager, uh, John was kind of instrumental in getting the hospitality side going, and um, uh, David Baird, our winemaker, was uh, um, uh, he 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 rose to the challenge and took on the winemaking role, and um, we talked a lot about what what we envisioned mm-hmm. in terms of what we were doing there and what what our purpose was and what kind of wine we were trying to make. Um, so yeah, it's been it's been a you know big diversion um eventually we ended up selling bread and butter kind of two years after that we bought the winery in 2015 Mm -hmm. um closed it down to remodel and reset um opened it up at the end of that year and then by 2017 kind of early 2017 uh uh we had received an offer to sell bread and butter and man i I, we i think the grape just the grape contract for that vintage was going to be $11 $11 million. Mm. I was like, Oh, like we got to get out of this. Like it just kept growing <laughs> yeah, so fast yeah. that it needed more and more money. And then <clears throat> it was hilarious because the banks wouldn't give us financing because they're like, Oh, you haven't been around that long. We'd really like to see another year of profitability. And I'm like, what do you think is going to happen? This thing's you know, growing nonstop, uh, kind of capital equity, um, uh, our equity, equity partners that were interested were, asking a lot for for their capital and so we we decided I, I remember talking to the sales force and saying okay here's here's our two choices we can do this or we can sell or we can keep trying to grow but we'll have to raise capital and they all said to 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 continue to grow meant to be you were going to become a different company we were we mm-hmm. were now dealing with national uh national grocery chains mm-hmm. You know, we're being asked for couponing and, you know, all these kinds of things that we don't have to deal with as a, as a smaller, medium sized mm-hmm. wine company. Mm-hmm. Um, when you when you get that big, when you have a brand that big, you start playing a different game. You start dealing with Costco, you start dealing with Target and, and things that um, things that even our our wholesale distributors could not service. Right. They weren't big enough to service that that large of a distribution. So. You know, we are kind of facing this this crossroads of okay, well, we we if we keep this brand, we we have to change who our wholesale partners are, mm-hmm. um, because they can't grow as fast. They can't grow with us or with this brand, um, and and so everyone in the company said we'd rather be a smaller company and we'd rather be uh, focused on wines that we believe in and and wanna get behind and so we kind of sold sold bread and butter and became uh became a company that that uh is smaller in footprint but um like every wine i think has uh still has a soul to it and and we believe in um and i think if we had gone through up that path we would have had to 
discontinue a lot of those wines and focus on, you know, feeding the beast. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the winery you bought? I mean, I. It was previously called Chateau Julien. Yeah. 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 Um, and this is, here's why he's on the podcast. I mean, you guys are, I'm sure you're loving this episode because it's just full of nuggets and, and just on the business of wine. Like, I have a lot of, had a lot of guests who are on the writer side and the, on the, and it is romantic. I love wine, but like, this is chock full of good stuff on the business side. We go to visit <coughs> on the Psalm tour. And, uh, you know, and immediately like there we're in, we're in a vineyard and there's these vines, you go, he goes, Oh, these vines, these vines suck. They don't make good wine, but they're great for weddings. <laughs> like it was just so raw and so honest. Like, like, and I was like, wow, okay, this is a guy who's in the wine business. Like I can tell you love wine, but like, like you said, like you, these are you're talking millions of dollars. Like how do we, how do we start making a profit? Right. So like, well, we're in Carmel Valley. We're above the fog. On. It's a great place to have uh, weddings and they, and they look great on Instagram with those wines. I'm sure they're great in wedding pictures. Um, so, um, but you do have 400 acres of vines somewhere, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we're partners in, um, several vineyards in throughout the Cenas Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> um, I am, not a farmer Mm -hmm. and so um i really have been able to partner with people who know what they're doing in the vineyard and we work hand in hand to uh uh, we're really pushing all of our vineyards to they're already uh sip certified or sustainably certified Mm -hmm. but we're really pushing to go go to 100 percent organic um while we use organic farming practices they're not certified um and quite honestly, I, I'm not hell bent on that certification. Uh, there's gaming involved in that too, but yeah. but in the end, it's it's how do you signal to the to the to the customer what your values are? And mm-hmm. so, um, as a as as a winemaker, we really want to talk about what we're what's being done in the vineyard to ensure that the wine is the best quality it can be. And so we're we're I mean, our next project is working with um, a uh, undeveloped piece of land to to create a, an organic vineyard from from the beginning that has never seen any chemical um, and that's exciting that, that that's uh, the wine industry I think is 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 behind that curve when it comes to my my socks are organic cotton right. for some reason but my wine I can't I don't know you know and um, I think that 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 is going to catch up to us we we are going to have to. Uh, get on that on that bandwagon more and the philosophy of the folktale group you mentioned earlier that there's a story in every bottle but um i know you have like some buckets inside of the group because you have distribution of the restaurant like kind of what is each one something to do with uh joy yeah yeah i mean my 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 wife Madigan asked me uh, as we were growing. She's like, "Why why are we doing that now? Like, right. how does that make sense? Why does a restaurant make sense? Why does uh, this make sense?" And I said, "I said the the connection that is that our company purpose is how do you uh, how do you make life more joyful, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And create more joyful moments. And I think that." And I blamed her. I mean, that that's that's her philosophy in life. So I was like, "This is all about you. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about you, baby." <laughs> um, but uh, but you know, when I think about what a bottle of wine does 
when you're with friends and family. It just makes that moment more more enjoyable when mm. you um, have a great meal together. It, it that in, enhances life. So it's a, like to me, it's the things we do, whether it's our music concerts or uh, the products we make or the experiences that we create. It's all about creating these joyful moments and um, yeah, makes makes life more fun than I guess making ha coat hangers I guess Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what my purpose would be <laughs> that's I love that make more life more joyful for sure I I say people like uh, you know wine is good for what it does it brings people together the conversations you have over it that's really what it's good for you know what I mean that's the value it adds and you know and you've been unless you're just trying to flex look at my expensive bottle of wine you know um, all right man so just a couple things we're gonna start to wrap it up. Thanks for coming in, you know, in New York with family and coming yeah, in. It's been a pleasure, yeah. Um, so I play this game, uh, FMK, Fuck, Marry, Kill, Three Grapes. I'm gonna get a name, Three Grapes, one you're fucking, one you're marrying, and one you kill off, don't get to have it anymore. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, and you'll get, you'll get why I did uh, <laughs> these. Pinot Noir, <laughs> Sangiovese, we know we got some Sangiovese in your life. Yes, yes. But you, you, I, I don't know. You might like Brunello. You might, you know. So, and then Cabernet Sauvignon. So, which one are you effing? Which one are you marrying? Which one are you killing? Um, uh, I'm definitely uh, going to marry Pino. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm although that's a hard life, but it's worth it. <laughs> worth it. <laughs> worth the suffering. Um. Yeah, that night of passion is with my Sangio. Okay. Um, uh, Italian. I mean, come on. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I'm killing Cabernet. Okay. Uh, I think Cabernet is uh, just there's too much there's too much like weight on Cabernet. It, it, as a California winemaker, mm -hmm. I'm just like, ah, oh, why, why is everyone talking about Cabernet? This is, you know, and everyone just. Uh, it, can I say it's a big dick contest in yeah, Cabernet like yeah. on this show? Yeah. Um, and that that seems to be all it is. Like, uh, it can be a beautiful grape, right? Velvet glove, but um, people just seem to be. It's like it's like a, a motorcycle. That everyone's just trying to make it louder. Yeah. And to me, it's you know when I when I drink Cabernet, I want it elegant and I want to taste the grape, not just you know alcohol and fruit and. In, in your face, so yeah. uh, that that's the one I kill. Okay, I, I, I like that. Um, what are you most excited about for the future? Uh, I've I've well, from a business strategy, I had made a decision a few years back to tr explore craft spirits. Okay, um, and um, now I'm involved in um, uh, we we have a. 2,000 acre ranch, agave ranch, building a new distillery. Um, and so Mezcal mm. and agave spirits are an exciting direction that we're going as a company. Um, falling in love with Mexico and the people and culture of Mexico um, and, and the lack of regulation <laughs> <laughs> coming from California. Um, but uh, yeah, I, somehow I found um, a product that is a bigger pain in the ass in wine. <laughs> It's agave. I mean, some of this stuff takes 30 years to mature. I mean, Ooh. it's nuts. So um, we, we planted some some agave last weekend when I was in Mexico, and I was like, I might be dead by the time this thing's ready to make mezcal out of it. You know, it's, 
that's crazy to think of, but when you think about something sitting in the ground and absorbing, we talk about terroir and absorbing mm-hmm. that sense of place over a decade, um, it, it's 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 an amazing story. So, uh, very cool, very romantic. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Um, <clears throat> and last question. Not that I really have questions, um, but these are like the, the few questions I have. Uh, I you should plug it, right? It's called Mezcal Mala Idea. Yeah. Bad idea. It's the first. Bad idea. It, yeah. It, it, it was like a, it's like joining a gang because my partner in Mexico, we were all together and he brings in five tattoo artists and he's like, we're all getting tattooed today. And I had never had a tattoo before. And so right here on my chest, I tattooed. Wow. Esta es una mala idea. So that means this is a bad idea. <laughs> wow. That reminds me of that. Saturday Night Live skit. You can Google it. Uh, Bad idea jeans was a skit. <laughs> anyway, um, I love that. That's your first tattoo. Now your now your parents are really proud of you. Majored in poetry <laughs> and you have a tattoo. <laughs> you talked about this early when you went to work. We got up in Napa and Seagram's and said the hook went in further. Bottle of wine that really started it all for you. Were you like, oh? You know, as as a kid, uh, it was probably. Uh, uh, was it Chianti Classico Rafino Chianti mm-hmm. Classico, mm-hmm. and then but that that bottle of wine was uh, ninety seven Corton Charlemagne White Burgundy, mm. and then uh, yeah that th- th- those two wines got me here I guess. Very nice, very nice, Gregory Greg. Thanks so much for coming in. Tell people where they can uh, find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing with Folktale and the and the Gagave and Mezcals and. Yeah, you can visit us at folktellgroup.com um, online. Uh, the uh, the uh, winery that we'd love to host you at is called Folktell Winery uh, in Carmel. We're only about five minutes from, from downtown Carmel by the Sea. Beautiful. Uh, we've got a restaurant, event facility, concerts, um, great wine, the whole deal. Um, that's at folktellwinery.com. And, um, uh, yeah, you can find... Our new mezcal that we're launching next month in uh, at uh, uh, mezcalmalidea.com. So awesome, man! Awesome. And for all the listeners, uh, make sure you check out the show notes. That's where you find. Um, I'll put the links to his website, uh, so you can go there. I'll find their Instagram for you guys. Put that there too. And until next time, cheers to the Mavericks, philosophers, deep thinkers, and all you wine drinkers. It's your boy MJ saying peace. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. <laughs>